Hey everybody, welcome back to Scuttlebutt. I am Vic. I'm here with William. Howdy. And we are super stoked today to be welcoming Ben Kessling to the show. Hey Ben, how you doing? I'm well. How are you guys doing today? Oh man, this is fantastic. So we've got some actual inroads sort of through our deployment experiences. I don't mean to, uh, I'm just going to hit some wave tops here um, because your career and your journey is so extensive um, as we're talking about your new book that's coming out next week, November 1st, Bravo Company, an Afghanistan deployment and its aftermath. But do you have a lot, like you have an extensive career uh, leading up to this point. Um, so just hit a couple of wave tops. So uh, you went to a Wabash College. Harvard Divinity School, then must have bumped your head or something because then you became an infantryman, <laughs> went to Iraq and Afghanistan, from there became a correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, is that right? Um, you went yeah. to the medial school of journalism. Uh, yeah, foreign yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, and it, well, it was, um, I mean, I was, uh, so I went to college before the Marine Corps, right, and I was in college when September 11th happened. Never in a million years would I have wanted to join the Marine Corps. It was that was the stupidest thing that somebody could choose to do out of high school. You know, like there was that one guy in high school who like had the high and tight, you know, and yep. I was like, man, that guy is off his rocker. Never want to be in the Marine Corps. No way. Yeah. Uh, then I went to college and then went to grad school um, and then decided, well, maybe I want to join the Marine Corps. Uh, so I yeah, I, I joined the Marine Corps after graduate school. So I came in kind of late. Um, it was a little bit older, uh, went through OCS and then had, uh, had a couple deployments, um, is a, one as a platoon commander, another one in Afghanistan as an individual augmentee. Um, and then, you know, transitioned out, went to use my GI bill, went to journalism school for a little while, and then, uh, started working at the wall street journal and started covering, uh, veterans and military issues. So it was, uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of stuff packed in there. Yeah. Well, one thing that you packed in that's absolutely fantastic and we'll never get anything quite so nuanced like this on the show again, I don't think. But you're also the two day Jeopardy. Yeah. 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 It's OK. So the two day Jeopardy champion thing is the only thing anybody ever cares about, which I mean, it's pretty rad, you know, like to do. Jeopardy it's very rad. Alex rad but um, but uh, for all of uh, for all the Marines who are. So I did that before I joined the Marine Corps for all the Marines who are out there um to, to they can heap their shame and ignominy on me is uh, i lost to uh to a uh, an air force um officer who was in uniform and so uh yeah yeah i don't think i'll ever look but but i lost because i ended up not answering in the form of a question on a oh. daily level. Uh, did he yeah. did he talk with his hands when he was answering <laughs> these questions? <laughs> yeah, it was in yeah, yeah inverted, right? No, yeah, anyway, right. but the the Jeopardy thing was uh, yeah, that was really cool, and it's like only thing anybody really ever cares about. So I should I should have just quit after after Jeopardy, you know, like but that would have been the end of the career. No, I mean you got to say like, hey Marines out there, do your MCIs. You never know, you might end up being a Jeopardy champion. Somewhere. Yeah, I mean, so you know, it's the no no one knows when you might need to know the max effective range of the M two forty Bravo. Uh, that might be a Jeopardy question one. Yeah, so, nice. Study up, study up, devils. That's the, yeah, that's the nice. advice for you. So, um, what what years were you in? So you said um, you were uh, in grad school. Nine eleven happened. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I was in co I was in college when nine eleven happened. Then did grad school. Um, and then, uh, I joined up in 2005 and I was in from 2005 to 2011, uh, had a deployment as a platoon commander in 2007 with, uh, two six, uh, was in Fallujah during, uh, during the, the sort of Ambar awakening and, and that surge stuff. Uh, and then went down to Southern Afghanistan with, um, with ISAF, uh, ISAF NATO, uh, did some MSG stuff. And uh, spent the spent the rest of my career out in sunny 29 Palms. Doing, yes. Uh, yes, with the Dude. training cadre. Um, That's where it started for me, man. Delta Company mm. Third Tracks. That's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, so uh, all the Marines, you know, I, I don't I don't do many things that are that, that are directed specifically toward Marines, like podcasts or whatever. But now that I get to talk directly to Marines, Marines will know that I my my duty station was not only 29 Palms, but it was. Uh, it was what is uh, what is, Camp Wilson 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Right. So for everybody who ever complains about being stationed at 29 Palms, be glad that you didn't have another hour drive yeah. out to your out to your office, which is what I had at Camp. Hey, did Wilson, they have so. the uh, did they have the whiskey chuck out there? There was nothing out there. Like uh, all that stuff had gotten shut down. There was nothing out there but like mount houses and and like and piles of dust. You know, like that's pretty much it. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, dear, dear Lord. But yeah, hey, the, the commissary had great sandwiches. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Um, yeah, so that's my, but that's my career kind of in a nutshell. Um, and uh, yeah, I joined up. Uh, it was unexpected that I joined up. And I think that, uh, you know, oddly enough, I'm going to do a, a kind of a weird segue right now, but I'm writing, I'm, I'm working on a story about where recruiting stands for, for mm-hmm. like the army and the Marine Corps and stuff right now. I'm writing for the Wall Street Journal. And there's uh, some interesting stuff that I'm, that I'm finding out about. Like right now, the big conversation, right, is like, Recruiting so difficult because there's a lack of propensity amongst young people, right? Like people don't want to go in or they're overweight or whatever. Um, but I, there's, uh, you know, the, the folks from the military, especially the army I'm talking to, right? They remind me that like propensity is not something that's just like you're born with, right? Like propensity for the military can change in both directions, right? People can get disenchanted and not want to do it. Or you can have somebody like me who would have never imagined a million years they joined the Marine Corps. But um, through exposure to other to other Marines and people who had served and stuff, uh, suddenly there's like a propensity to want to join. Uh, so I think that there's I don't know, there's some kind of I don't know what the lesson is, but there's some kind of lesson in there about the way people change and the way things change over time. Right. Nothing is static in this world. Um, and that's that is so true with my Marine Corps career. I never would have thought I would do it. And then suddenly I'm a Marine Corps infantryman of all things. Right. So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, that's really gnarly. And especially, I mean, looking at your story, um, as you were mentioning, so you're in um, Harvard Divinity School, right, get your right. MDiv, and then next thing you know, you're in Quantico OCS. Like, there's no way your probably academic advisor at Harvard would have anticipated this one. And then did your Oso get a Navy com for pulling that one off? I mean, that's insane. Well, yeah, well I always say that, like the Oso, uh, the the officer selection officer in like in Boston has got to have. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm talking uh, like maybe I'm gonna uh, get letters from from Osos about this. But man, it seems like a great job. Like you're the Oso in Boston. There's Harvard. There's MIT. There's Tufts. There's BU. There's BC. There's like a Northeast. You got all these schools there. Like I remember from my Oso. He didn't have to talk me into anything. I just like walked in. I was like, "Hey, I'm ready to join the Marine Corps." And he's like, "Oh, okay." Uh, Get in line. I'm like, <laughs> like, "Oh, I'm going to I'm going to Harvard, and uh, and I can, you know, if you want me, I can just run this quick, you know, uh, like uh, class one or whatever, the PFT." And uh, he's like, "Okay, cool, sign here." It was like the easiest job ever, right? Like, yeah, so, uh, yeah. If you if you're out there looking for a B billet, Oso in Boston seems like it's <laughs> yeah. it's pretty solid. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, like. I, I, I use, I mean, I, even though there, I don't know of any other infantry officers or infantrymen for that, uh, uh, for that, who, who have masters of divinity degrees, but yeah. I feel like that, that degree, um, it helped me so much, uh, in both time, but being in service and then afterwards. And this is interesting. I'd like, I, I appreciate that you ask about this because, um, I haven't, not many people like really ask me about this connection, both in service and then after, but you know, deploying to deploying to a country when we deployed to Iraq, right? First of all, you you're you've got a platoon full of people from all over the place, right? Like this is the thing that it, when you know talk about uh, talk about uh, here and there about like West Point, like where when it, when I say hey, there, there's a real need for like humanities studies and cultural studies at places like West Point because. What other college or school do you go to where as soon as you get out, you're guaranteed to have a job that is in charge of all these of all these people from all different walks of society? Like, I don't know where else you would do that. And, and OCS is like the same thing in the Marine Corps. You get out of OCS, you end up with a platoon full of guys um, and now gals who are from all over the place and of all kinds of different backgrounds. And people's religious backgrounds and, and cultural understanding of that is so is so important to them. And to have, you know, an academic background in studying that and understanding that, um, I, I think it was very important both of, uh, for being uh, a platoon commander, but then also 
going to Iraq and interacting with people and understand having a base understanding, uh, more than a base understanding, right? Like a bit of a deeper understanding of the, of the socio, uh, the socio-religious, um, context. And I thought that was immensely helpful. And then having gotten out of the Marine Corps and covering the Pentagon, the VA, and being a foreign correspondent for the journal, um, having that MDiv background has allowed me to have a depth of understanding that a lot of people don't have coming to it. And now writing, so, you know, you guys are having me on because I have this book that's out, uh, Bravo Company, which is, follows a, an army company um, from before their deployment, through their deployment, and then the, the transition and then uh, being veterans and dealing with the reckoning of that for 10 years, having this, um, having this MDiv background, and when you, when you get a Master of Divinity degree, you have to do a practical application. So it's like a ministerial aspect to it um, or chaplaincy. And when you're talking to Marines or soldiers or veterans or dependents, wives, daughters, sons, cousins, whatever, there's, whenever you're talking to somebody about their military service, there's an aspect of it that is, is so um, confessional, right? Yeah, and, nice. Right. And like building up the building up a relationship to have a two way conversation and to understand that there's like a depth of um, a depth of experience and a depth of trauma, for lack of a better word, or a depth of like moral, you know, looking into the the uh, the like how your morals are arranged and what, what, what does, uh, what does going to combat and being in service do to all that. But uh, on this end of it, talking to veterans and folks, I feel like there is an ability to have those conversations and not just have people open up. It's one, you know, like it's one thing to say, Oh yeah, it's, I, I work on having people open up and talk to me, but you know, like, somebody open up and talk to you doesn't mean it's a genuine, genuine two-way conversation or like a genuine, um, uh, a genuine, like look into those, your, your feelings and experience. Right. So it's not just uh, like having people be comfortable to speak with me, but having them be comfortable that we're having an authentic conversation, which is so important for when we talk about our experience, um, that some of the deepest, the deepest experiences that we can have, right? Like the experience you have having gone to war, having trained for war, uh, having seen what happens in war and, ha- and then coming home, um, to have somebody who you feel like you can talk to because they are genuinely interested in what you're saying is, uh, is such an important thing. It's, I'm, I'm not even going to say it's an important skill for me to have, cause it's not a skill. It's not like some tool that you use to, to pry open people. It's, it's a, a depth of your, of, of your actual personhood, right. That right. you bring to a conversation anyway. That was that was probably way too much what you wanted about M. No, stuff, no, that's but. that's absolutely perfect. Yeah. I, mean, I think there's so much uh, really to and you know in as far as like how we sort of interrogate life. And I know you've you talked a little bit in the book about it, but like that sort of the stigma behind trauma. But really, mm-hmm. when you right. sort of unpack life, life is just a series of tra- traumatic experiences, sort of interspaced with like periods of euphoria, and so if you don't have sort of that context, that life experience or what some people I've heard, like your own personal encyclopedia, if you can't download your encyclopedia and then communicate it to somebody else, um, it's not to be disarming, like you said, in a manipulative way, but it's to be disarming in a way of like, dude, we're sharing in in this experience. This isn't a con, this isn't a trauma contest. That's right. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, you know, talking about, uh, I mean, just even using the term trauma is so problematic on some on so many levels and talking with about veterans, right? Because there really there is no other. I mean, it's the probably the best word that we have to describe what it's like to go through the experience of combat, right? Like you're going war is something that is extraordinary to the lived everyday experiences of most people. And right. And um, and the stuff that happens, even the mundane, most the mundane things that happen, the um, the just going to deployment, seeing seeing the 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 sort of um, the detritus of war that is left behind in any war, no matter whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's neither, 
Um, and then also the extraordinary experiences that you have in that extraordinary environment. Um, so facing the traumas of, of, of actual, of actual combat, right? Like people who face that, um, those things are traumatic, but trauma doesn't necessarily, um, it doesn't necessarily leave a, a, a wholly negative, um, imprint upon you, right? When you have it, it's just a life experience, as you said, right? And I think that also having conversations with veterans and their family members about trauma and saying, look, trauma, giving them permission to know, because so, so much out there, this, I, I talk about, there's this veteran script, right? You go to, you go, you're a good kid from a small town, you get recruited, you go in, you go to war, you see horrible stuff, you come home and you're broken, right? Like that's kind of the 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 stereotypical script that Temple. veterans are supposed yeah. to follow. Yeah, yeah, right? Like, yeah, totally, total template that we're that we're understand, right? But to be able to talk to folks and say, look, that template is not accurate because it's black and white and it's and it's it's too easy. There's infinite shades of gray with with anything in human experience, especially something as incredible and uh, and as incredible in the human experiences as combat is. So to be able to talk to folks and say, look trauma isn't something that breaks you down and it's not something that makes you grow. It's something that does both, right? Because it's life, right? And right. To, to be able to talk to someone and say, the feelings that you're feeling right now um, of, of both immense loss and immense gain of euphoria and of doldrum of like um, being for, for guys, guys, you know, men and women who are out being like so happy to EAS and be out of uniform, but also missing it every single day. Right. That, like to be able to to help people understand that these all these emotions are held in tension at all times because what you have done as uh, someone who raised your hand to join the military, you you've probably done something that uh, has a depth and breadth of experience that most people are never going to know, and uh, and to have all those things being held in tension is is just the reality of it. That's life and. Uh, and to, to, to give permission to talk about their traumas in good and bad ways and to have them understand that, um, yeah, be, just because you're struggling with something doesn't mean that I'm going to put you into a box, this like template of a broken veteran, right? It means that we're going to talk about all the things that come from that, that experience of, of trauma. So, yeah, I think that yeah. the, that, the, yeah, that depth of depth of understanding is so important. For sure. And I think having that MDiv, um, you know, I took some seminary classes at uh, Wesley Theological here in D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just having that sort of those tools in your kit, I think, allow you to when you are having these conversations to be able to say, like, hey, you are seen. This stuff matters. Um, you know, don't disregard it. Don't dismiss it. I won't do that either. And we tend to do that in the military, right? Like we eat our young all the time. Like I was there with you. Suck it the fuck up. Like mm-hmm. stop talking about it and take your full 30 inch step. And I think for you, it almost is like a, you've got empathy bullets or something, right? Like, well, well, and I want to, for, um, so I want to talk about a couple as, as we're, as we're talking, I think that there's some good, um, almost like case studies and character sketches that I can pull from the book to give some, Absolutely. uh, to, to talk about this. So the, the tops, the top senior enlisted man for this, for this army company. Um, and you know, again, this is 2009, 10 timeframe when these all, when these, when these men deployed. So it's all men at this time, there's no women. So, um, that's why I will use, use the language of, of him and, and of men in this context. So, um, just know that, um, sure. and it's not to be dismissive of, of other people's experiences. It's just at the time, that's the way it was. So the senior man in that, in that unit, his name was, uh, first Sergeant Mac, uh, Donald McAllister. Right. And this was a hard, hard ass dude. I mean, your prototypical senior enlisted guy. Yeah, he's a, a ranger, right? With an 82nd, uh, batal- 82nd airborne so, unit. <laughs> well, this guy was 82nd. He's he was he was 82nd. He was uh he was in the uh you know the the old guard out in, in D.C. The guys who do the the spit and polish stuff at Arlington, mm-hmm. and just like a hard dude. And when he was in, he would be like, "You need to suck it up, and I don't give a I don't care what you've seen, and also I've probably seen more, so shut up." And yeah. once he gets out. 
it's as like once he retires as a sergeant major, right? He gets out and he starts to realize, hey man, like uh having a pissing contest over who had a more traumatic experience doesn't help anyone. It doesn't help it doesn't help the person who is trying to be superior about it because it doesn't allow them to fully um like wrestle with their own experience and it doesn't help the person who they're crapping on, right? Because that person shuts down, right? So Mac is, he is, and, and this is something that, that we can all work toward, um, is he's able to open that door and help people in to talk about their trauma and their experiences. Because as I, I mean, I say in the book, you know, there's, there's always a way to try to say, hey, my objective trauma is greater than yours, or your objective trauma is greater than mine. But we can't know the burdens that are born in the hearts of our fellow man. Um, we can't know what the, what kind of trauma that our fellow person has really gone through or what they're able to shoulder and manage. And uh, somebody like McAllister, and I talk about this quite a bit in the book, is how, how he changes and welcomes people in to these conversations. And he can do that because he has the bona fides, right? He has the, he has the, the, the combat behind him. He's got a purple heart. He's been a, uh, a hard ass SNCO. And that's the type of person who can open the door and say, look, everybody's welcome to come have a conversation. Let's all work through this together because we owe that to each other. So yeah, to backtrack I, for, sorry, Vic, for our yeah, audience a little bit, how did you get, uh, how did you create Bravo Company? What was the impetus behind it? How did you become uh, interconnected with, with this particular company from the 82nd Airborne? And, and, and why did you pursue it? Yeah, well, that's that's an important question, right? It's like, so I, in 2019, I wrote a, a newspaper story about their this reunion they had where they brought the entire unit back together. And it was, uh, it was a pilot program that the VA participated in where there were some suicides uh, in the unit and some suicidal ideations and just so people were hitting some rough patches a decade after their deployment. And a lot of times the VA treats people as individuals floating through the system, right? Like you go in, you get treated by yourself for individual medications. And it's just, it's, you're, you're doing your own thing, right? But in the military, you're a team and we operate as a team. And also we live on this planet amongst each other, right? Like no man or woman is an island. We all are interconnected. And so these, these guys came together for a reunion where it was they when they said okay we're going to bring everyone back together who had the exact same experience a congruent experience so it was a reunion but it was also bolstered by the va being there with clinicians to help them work through some of this stuff and to have it be a healthy environment and not just devolve into telling like um telling uh, old war stories and and crappy jokes right okay. they like you know they unpack that so anyway I went to cover that as almost as this novel thing that the VA was supporting. It was, and, you know, wrote a short, a pretty relatively short story about it. Um, and then a publisher approached me and said, Hey, there's more here. There's an entire book. And I said, I don't know, man, I, I don't think I can do these guys story justice. And my, my publisher and editor, God bless his soul, kept pushing me uh, until I relented and said, all right, let's write this book. And there was so much more there. And I'm so glad he did because it allowed me to unpack all this stuff. And um, I think that there's sort of a, a side question to, to what you asked is like, why did you write about this unit? I just so happened to catch an army unit to write about. And, um, you know, our um, one of the things that we do also as people who have served is we really want to tell our story, right? Like our story yeah. is the most interesting story on the planet and, um, and it, we're the best. And so people get out and they want to write memoirs. They want to write from first person. They want to unpack their own stuff and talk about the things that are closest to them. So Marines talk about the Marine Corps and themselves. I was very lucky that I got this 82nd airborne unit to talk about because it allowed me to talk about everything in the third person, right? Like I'm not involved in this book in any way. And I talk about an army unit. So I had their, you know, as coming from a Marine Corps infantry background, I'm intimately familiar with, uh, with infantry stuff, but the fact that it was an army unit gave it that little sort of twist that, uh, that made me always be on my toes to something foreign and have to, and have to unpack it and interrogate that, that aspect of it. 
Uh, and it also kept me the hell out of the, any, <laughs> kept me the hell out of the book, it kept me from wanting to be in, inject myself into it in any way. And it was great because it allowed me to tell their story. Um, and I, it, by not being a part of it, I think is one thing that makes this, makes this book, it makes it unique because it's a story about an army unit, right? But because of my background, I was able to, I mean, in many ways, tell my own experiences and, and an understanding of war through their story in ways that would have fallen flat and just been not interesting if I would have told it about myself or a unit that I fought with. Um, and by, you know, being able to tell these, tell these guys story, um, as best I can, uh, it really, um, yeah, it was, I was just very lucky that I was able to, to find, uh, an army unit to, to be able to, to write about like this and that they welcomed me in, uh, and, uh, and were more than happy to talk to a Marine. I don't know why, but, uh, they, yeah, like, uh, aside from the daily crayon jokes that I had to endure from these guys, like, um, they're, they're, um, still in awe of the fact that they opened up and talked to me so much and, uh, and shared so much with me. But what is it? They say that, uh, Rangers and airborns are just, uh, airborne men are just, um, Marines that were, can't swim. <laughs> uh, like, well, these guys, they, they're like, they're uh, like every new conversation had to start with the obligatory, uh, making fun of, making fun of Marines joke, you know? Absolutely. Um, yeah, like I, I did hear one. Uh, there's a, the one that I had not heard before, which was really good. I can't remember which one of these guys told me that they said, you know why Marines like white crayons so much, right? Because you can't see it when they get stuck in their teeth. And I thought that's, that's solid. <laughs> that's but, yeah. So anyway, but yeah. Um, but yeah, they, you know, they, they were, it, it was, it was great to be able to, to have these guys open up and to, and, and to talk to them and to sort of unpack my own experiences um, through there, um, through the mediation of writing about them. It was, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I probably should have led off with this, but your prose throughout this book is, um, I mean, it's, it's beautiful, um, and how you have it structured. Um, and I, I mean, I really, it, like you said, this is so much more than just a, a history book or, um, a, you know, sort of a retelling of the 82nd experiences in Afghanistan. Right. Um, and it, the way that you have this written in this sort of creative nonfiction, long form journalism way, it allows us to sort of see the macro and the micro themes that are going on here, because this really does what you're talking about in this book transcends just what does a soldier, sailor, airman, and marine would go through on a deployment. And so, again, my hat's off to you. But I guess to your point about um, sort of unpacking your own journey through theirs, um, I really felt like there was so much of this that I was able to see as like, hey, I wonder if he's also talking about himself. And, you know, one part uh, on page 57 here, when you were talking about how soldiers can be perplexed when they're talking to civilians. And it really made me think of some of the challenges that you may have faced initially or, you know, I, so I wanted to ask you about sort of your, some of your experiences coming into this unit. But I really thought it was funny when you say that. Um, yeah, you say here, uh, this is one of the basic dividing lines between soldier and civilian. The soldier has a genuine appreciation for what it means to be in combat. And so knowing that you were a Marine, that you had to, uh, you know, you were in Afghanistan, you were in Iraq. Um, was it like, hey, this guy know this guy knows what the hell's going on, or is it one of these like, hey, an FNG is an FNG, man. You got to earn your stripes just like everybody else. Um, well, to to start by, uh, first of all, thank you very much uh, for those kind words. And yeah, the the book is written in a way that's that allows for. I mean, at one point, you know, we zoom all the way out to what was happening at the White House for policy decisions mm -hmm, on deployment. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, you know, a few pages later, we're zoomed into uh, the, 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 the grunt that's humping the 240 uh, and worrying about where every footfall is going to going to land. Is it going to step on an IED? The, I, I wanted to have this wide scope to cover to cover all of that from the from the from the PFC on the ground to the president in the White House and how those two interact 
um, how people end up where they end up. Somebody has to decide to send a unit downrange ultimately. And I was able, amazingly enough, to sort of unpack how this unit ended up where they're at. And I know that every grunt, once they finish up with a with a deployment, wants to know, well, how the hell do we end up doing what we just <laughs> yeah. did, right? Well, I was kind of able to find that out for these guys, and I unpack that in the story. Um, and I, I try to do so in a way that, that moves quickly and doesn't get bogged down into sort of history, right? Like it's, yeah. it, 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 it moves fast. So you yeah. don't, it's um, not a textbook. You know, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, but as far as, you know, having these guys talk to me and describe their, their experiences, um, there was a, there was quite a bit of a two-way conversation, you know, when they would start talking about something, what I, I say that like to, um, a good author, right, is almost like a good nonfiction author is kind of like an interpreter, right? They have to be well versed in the in the in the language that is being that's coming to you from an from someone you're interviewing, and to be able to translate that into something that um, that a general readership will will, will like. Both um, readers who are civilians who have never heard of us. I mean, I you know I have somebody I passed the book to who had didn't even know. The terminology didn't even know ranks like other than like, oh, I think I heard of a sergeant one time or something. So it's written for to be so that person can read it and get something out of it. But also somebody who has spent a career in the Army or the Marine Corps or whatever uh, can read this book and get something out of it as well. And um, during the writing of it, I was sort of conscious of the fact that I'm translating these men's experience. of, you know, you take the one moment, you know, a moment shorter than a second and explain how that, what happens in that half a second that anybody who's been in the military and really anybody out there has experienced at some point, uh, how time warps and stretches. So I take the, you know, to be able to translate that feeling that somebody has when they realize something bad is some bad shit is about to happen. Like a bomber is about to blow up or something. And what does that half second feel like? And to be able to translate that in a way that that person will um, will recognize it and say, yeah, that's that's correct, that's accurate, that's what I was feeling and talking about, and uh, it was able to get translated on the page in a way that I couldn't, you know, maybe not could not done myself. So that was something I was thinking about the whole time as I was doing this. But there was an aspect to it where, hey, um, I'm I am a Marine coming to talk to you guys, uh, coming to talk to the Army. I have some comprehension of what you of of what you under you know went through and uh and 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 happened but and i think this goes back to talking about um when we talk about trauma and we talk about helping each other unpack that trauma uh again it's so easy for us when we when somebody comes says oh hey i'm i was in the army be like oh hey i'm a marine and then suddenly you're trying to like joust with each other over who gets to tell the story of their of the of whatever bullshit they did like and neither one of you really care you just want to talk about yourself right and i was like conscious of saying like having this introduction to these guys to say hey um you know i i i was in the in the marine corps for 6 years i was an infantryman so i kind of understand what you've gone through but i don't understand because i can't understand what you went through so why don't you tell me and to listen to the other person's story. Um, and that was, that's such a big part of it and how we can help. I mean, you know, the, how we can help each other work through our experience of war is by genuinely listening yeah. to, to the other person. Yeah. Right. And so it was never like, um, I, I, I mean, I don't know. You, I, I, I hope, and I think that when I would, would talk to these men and, and to their dependents and, uh, about, uh, about their experience in their life, I hope that I did not, I worked to not interject myself into the conversation, to just allow them to understand that I, allow them to understand that I can understand, and then from that point proceed forward. Uh, and I think that's a big part of, I mean, anybody who's listening to this who's been, who is a veteran, will know uh, how precious a thing it is to have someone um, have someone acknowledge that they understand that they can understand. And then move forward from there. Uh, and yeah. I think that that, uh, yeah, I hope that answers the question. No, that definitely came through on the page for sure. And I think it makes it really en- endearing that for, I guess, like you said, sort of like we look at your readership on a spectrum, that those who have zero exp- exposure to the military are going to take away a really 
um, sort of detailed, gritty, and human uh, experience of these guys. And then for those of us who maybe skew towards the more experienced um, or more, we understand some of the nuance, it's really fulfilling for us as well because we can see that dichotomy of the like, hey, I'm, you're, you're getting out of the way and you're letting the story tell itself, which is beautiful. But at the same time, there's only so much of telling a story like this that is going to be is, is going to be sanitized or is going to be you're going to be completely removed from. And that's endearing. Right. 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 And uh, yeah. And I mean, from from early on in the project, um, I realized that this was this was one of my main goals was to to have this be a book that a civilian can pick up and understand uh, like this is the sort of thing that I want a if if a, a soldier, a marine, an airman, a sailor, uh, a coastie, anybody who's 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 been who's been downrange and can't like put it into words to their family or don't want to talk to their family about it or whatever, I want this to be a book that they can like hand to their mom or their dad or their cousin or their uncle or whomever and say just read this and then maybe we can start a conversation. So a way for civilians to understand um, the multifaceted nature of, of experiencing combat and coming home from combat. Uh, but at the same time, be something that the, the, those same troops who have been there can read and say, Oh, like I better understand, I better understand my own experience by reading this. Uh, and I, you know, I, I had a, a couple missions in, in writing this and a couple different, um, a couple different, uh, um, groups that I was trying to, trying to, to talk to with this. And I, I hope that that, I hope that that mission, uh, succeeds. Yeah, I, I, I would say it would for sure. And then, and I guess to that point, like you take a very intimate perspective with these guys. I mean, right, right from page one, um, you're bringing us into, you know, the challenges of transitioning of, um, you know, how, uh, a double double amputee is dealing with, um, you know, still staying in top physical performance, but yet, um, you know, having to worry about prosthetics and then all of the challenges that come with having to get replacement prosthetics and or the uh, the soldier that is now, you know, this massive beekeeper and like some of the ther the therapy that that provides him and the and the the life uh, that he has uh, post deployment. Um, right, right. And so th th this is so nuanced. And so I I wonder. Um, you know, we get into the even some of the gritty details of where you're talking about Johnny, um, the Afghan linguist. How did that process go being that you weren't physically there? Because when you read this, I feel like you were just the, you know, 201st guy on the roster. You just didn't mention yourself when, you know, when it came time to muster sort of thing. How did that work collecting all of this extraordinary detail and all these tactile sort of um, stories? Without one, you not being there, but then two, these guys being, you know, decades removed or a decade removed from it now. Right. Um, no, that's and that's a um, that's a very good process question. And uh, part of that came from I, I didn't want to I didn't want to write a single word down, um, uh, you know, start the book until I had um, extensively interviewed a number of people. So I wanted to dive deep and get, um, I, I actually set myself a goal that I wasn't going to write a pay, a word on the page until I had a hundred hours of interviews because I wanted to make sure that I had that, uh, sort of wide look at, uh, at the unit, but also had, had dove, had dived deep into, uh, into individual stories. And I mean, if, uh, you know, when you're writing, when you're working on a piece of, of, of narrative nonfiction, it's so important to remember that it's, I mean, it's, you want to show things and not tell them, you right. You want to have, you want to have, because combat isn't about, it's not just, you know, talking about guns going bang and things blowing up and like, you know, describing things on some, I don't know, like, um, the way you might for a, a fifth grade book report or something. It's talking about like, the smell of war, you know, like yeah. talking to talking to men about what it's like to smell their friends charred um, body parts, what the what the sound is like, um, this the 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 weird ways that sounds in, uh, make their impression on us, like 
the feeling uh, under your, you know, under your, under your hands of stuff. Um, you know, talk to one man who gets his, his arm blown off and just talking to him about somebody kind of handed him his arm to hold with his other hand. And, it, you know, him saying, oh, yeah, it was just because, I mean, an arm's got all kinds of joints and things that move here and there. And he was like, and it just, it was real jiggly. That's just what I remember was it was jiggly to hold. And it's like, there, that's, I mean, that's a, <laughs> a great description of what it's like yeah. to hold your like limp and almost lifeless arm with, uh, in, in your other arm. Um, yeah, getting those, getting those descriptions of things, then talking to a couple different people who were there, um, and sort of cross-referencing those, uh, those things to make sure that there's not, it's not just a one-off missing memory or something. And, um, and there's one spot in the book that I, that I, you know, you asked, how do you, how do you talk about this stuff being so far removed from employment, you know, like a decade later, well, more than a decade later. Right. And, um, there's one section in the book where there's the death of, there's the combat death of one of the, of one of the sergeants. And I write about it as, uh, as a series of misremembered events from people who were there. Um, there are five different ways that the sergeant died. Um, or at least there's five different ways that everyone distinctly remembers how he died. Uh, and what's the, what's the reality somewhere in there? It's one of those who like, who knows, but that's like dealing with the idea of memory is, uh, is such an important thing for veterans and for this story insofar as once an event occurs, right? Like you become it becomes adamantine, right? In its, in, in what happened in your memory, this thing happened this way. I remember it perfectly. Uh, and yet that memory was formed in this crucible of stress and, uh, maybe your senses weren't working too well. Like your memory is formed in an imperfect way. And then also as time goes on, your adamant remembrance of that thing somehow is able to change. So you think it's written in stone, but the very stone that it's written on uh, changes and, right. and, and adapts. And so talking to people and having the reality, ha talking about the reality of those memories um, being um, oddly, oddly flexible, weird things, but at the same time set in stone, um, talking to, to the men about that. And then also there is like a, a capital T truth or a capital F fact at the beginning, at the, at the root of all of this, right? So getting, um, you know, getting the, uh, seeing some of the reports or talking to officers and senior enlisted about like, what, what no kidding can we say happened? Like, yeah, it's one thing to remember what happened on patrol and to like try to patch together, well, like through feelings and memory, what actually happened. But there's a log book somewhere that says that these men yeah. stepped from here to here at this time, at this time, like there are those, there are those definitive milestones, uh, that are, that are worked through things as well. Yeah, that's that's really that's fascinating. I mean, it's um, it's got to in some ways it feels like um, you know, when you watch uh, like these court movies, like Few Good Men or or uh, you know whatever, like you know they're they're doing they're creating all these linkages and they're hearing all these stories and they're looking at the actual you know sort of historical account and stuff and then trying to piece it all that. That's really that's really fascinating. Well, I mean it, that. That process, uh, and my hats off to you, is, is fairly seamless on the page. Uh, it really is. Um, Thank so you. So, like I said, it seems almost as if you were you were actually there. I kept, I was like, I thought he was a marine, not an airborne guy. <laughs> so, um, from yeah, from, and it, sorry. Oh, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So, from my field of history, we have the issue of struggling between memory and history. Did you supplement uh, your interviews with looking at you know AR reports or other? Uh, secondary or, or primary sources from the time, just to you know, fill in the blanks. Because you mentioned, yeah, these these five individuals interpreted this person's death in five different ways. So how how did how did you uh, I guess back it up to clear and make sure that um, these sometimes misaligned accounts create a coherent narrative? Right. Um, well, I, I uh, was able to uh, take a look at some some AAR stuff and uh, and get some, some of those tangible definites. Right. Um, but this is a, uh, excellent question to be able to address the woeful nature of, uh, of the military historian field in, uh, in our current, in our current military. So our, 
our parents and grandparents generation right there were military historians and there were paper trails of everything that happened and there were multi-volume um series produced after wars like world war ii of official accounts now like yeah maybe the official account is maybe that's not the best account because it's the official account but nevertheless it was an official account of what happened according to the u.s army uh and there it is on the shelf in our modern military the role of combat historian has almost faded away and units don't do a good job of keeping unit histories first of all there is a very ephemeral nature of the actual medium with which uh those histories are are, are done right in vietnam you'd have a paper logbook, you know like the rto would call it in and someplace at the talk they would write it down in a green book and there it would be black and white go to the national archives there it is in the wars we're in now as anybody who's been in them knows a lot of stuff goes over merc chat or right. goes over this like essentially text messaging system and sometimes that stuff like is is backed up sometimes it's not uh reports are typed out and presented in powerpoint presentations on laptops sometimes like personal laptops that then get thrown away or stuck into a basement somewhere and never get opened up again and that information doesn't get transmitted well the when i tried to find out from the 82nd airborne about bravo you know like hey do you guys have um any kind of a definitive account a definitive history that you can give me that i can look at for bravo company and they said all right give us a minute we'll, we'll we'll try to dig something up for you uh and what they sent to me in the mail was the unit history as recounted by the company commander who had written down their unit history at my behest and sent it to me uh, weeks earlier. So essentially, um, the 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 official history uh, was and, and like you know this is not any kind of like I mean this is not some kind of uh, quixotic tilting at windmills task. Like this is a task that everybody who writes about war now has is we're the ones drafting the the history right and some of this stuff you can't like you can't double check against anything besides the memories that are still that are still available um and that the account that you know that i mentioned about the five you know i think it was five different um reminiscences and remembrances of the way that this uh this the sergeant um died um none of them matched up to what made it into the newspaper and the thing that made it into the newspaper um seems like it was the one that might be the furthest away from the truth um so uh you know the official histories it's it's up to you know it's up to us to to, to make sure that they get saved and kept because there's nobody you know no, no nobody up in whatever the 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 g3 office or whoever's whoever's in charge of this stuff isn't doing it anymore because of budgets being cut and positions being cut and uh and official histories just not being kept um and i know that there's there's some folks who do who try to do definitive histories of like the Iraq war definitive histories of the of the US campaign um in the in the counter ISIS war and those are by all intents and purposes the official histories of US military action in those places and they're done by civilian reporters um because the official uh, the official folks just have abdicated that responsibility yeah, I, you know, I never even considered that, um, you know, because like you said, like, yeah, everything was going on over Merc chat. Like if you like we had a COC logbook, but if I'm talking to hire, man, I'm not like. You know, I'm not sending them anything official. I'm I'm going to hit them up on Merc check and I'll probably do it from my MRAP or from my AAV as I'm about to, you know, DFL. There's there's just I mean, the the, the way that the way that things were uh, broadcast and kept and stuff and still i mean it's still that way is there's no guarantee that any of this any of these things are going to are going to exist and yeah. if they do exist they may might exist in a uh, digital format that's inaccessible in a year or two yeah. or three you know like imagine trying to get a floppy disk out now and trying to pull some yeah. uh you know pull some like lotus works like file off of it and it's like whoa i can't even open these things so uh, that's, I mean, that's also a big problem of it. If it's not on paper and in the National Archives, like there's nothing guaranteeing that it is going to be accessible, um, you know, a couple of years from now or even right now. 
Well, hey, Matt, I know um, you've been so generous with your time, and I, I, I hate to, to bog you down, but I did have a, one question, I guess, going back to the book and some of the stuff. Absolutely. Some of the stuff you'd mentioned earlier about, especially for transitioning vets, um, you had this phrase that really um, stuck with me uh, in your book. You talk about the high priests of war. Um, and I thought this was such an interesting um, perspective where, you know, in, in some regards, uh, you know, depending, I guess, on what side of the aisle you fall in on, some may look down upon um, this sort of this sort of person as a warmonger. Others may see the pain uh, and be looking for ways to, but I mean, regardless, for that person who is the high priest of war, and just to clarify, the person that you're talking about is someone that will do repetitive, like, will do on repeat cycle, will do work up, deploy, return, work up, deploy, return. Um, right, right. And, it, it almost it almost pursues that that path, uh, but yet it's a very self defeating prophecy though, as as you mm. mentioned, um, that you go you do all of these things and yet it's more you feel more empty when it's over than when you stepped off, but yet you go and do it again, sort of kind of like you were talking about, like this Don Quixote, like I'm just going to keep chasing these windmills and eventually I'll find the one that gets me uh, where I want to be, and it's just this sort of tireless pursuit of emptiness it almost it kind of reminds me a little bit of like the hungry ghosts of buddhism that you just like mm. oh i just take it all in and i'm just it's just gonna all just dump out and then never gonna fill me up like what what, what was some of your thoughts as you were talking to the uh the guys from the 82nd on that yeah so the the person that uh, that i sort of talk about in this in the book his name is rob muscle and he is uh he's a guy who um he knows the sort of aesthetic purity of what combat is, how it is this place that is uh, removed, you know, almost removed from the real world when, when, when combat starts happening, like actual firefights and whatnot. And I describe him and others like him, as you say, as, as sort of a high priest of war, somebody who, t who knows that war and combat require so much um, professionalism, so much uh, preparedness, and it's almost a sacrosanct thing. So we talked a little bit earlier about the stereotypes of of soldiers, right? And we, um, I think that the stereo there's also there's a stereotype or a template for the person who likes combat that they are um, that they're nuts, that they're warmongers, that they just want violence for the sake of violence. But I try to give a little more depth to to that for some for some of these men, they realize the the realities of war. I mean, we send people to combat to fight like that's what we do uh, when we send infantrymen overseas. And these these men who I describe as high priests of war, they they almost they realize the. Um, the incredible responsibilities that's on their shoulders when they are doing, when they're leading men in combat or in combat themselves. And they don't want to sully that by, um, by doing things that we would stereotypically see in like a movie or TV show about somebody who loves to go into a firefight just for the sake of, of killing. And I say that these high priests of war um, are like, they want to be, they want to be in combat because they signed up for it. They're, they've become good at it and they want to do it properly, which is to say, follow the rules of engagement and, 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 and do things the way that, um, you know, that anybody sitting in the rear would be, uh, would say, maneuver, okay, that's, with that's been doing yeah, yeah. And that's been done properly. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I say, like, who else would we want in those positions in, in combat except for these people who, who are like these high priests of war, who take it so seriously? But the flip side, as you said, is like, if you are someone who thrives on combat and wants to make that your profession, uh, I mean, going to war isn't something, it's not like... Um, it's not like playing flag football or swimming, something that you can do until you're 85 years old in a retirement <laughs> community, right? Like 
do you have a shelf life as a soldier, as a professional soldier? And that's going to come to an end at some point. And people who take it very seriously and make careers out of it. Um, and heck, I mean, even, even, uh, guys and gals who do, uh, three years on a contract and get out as PFCs or, or lieutenants, um, that what they what they've like poured so much of their life into comes to an end at some point and they have to figure out how to um how to reckon with that and also how to reckon with the fact that they were never because the the marine corps uh is a is a is a cruel cruel mistress right everybody knows that and so is so is um the profession of combat arms because it's never going to it's never going to fully fulfill fulfill you and you're never going to leave being like all right i am i've done everything i want to do and i've done it extraordinarily well and i'm happy nobody ever says that when they get out they always have regrets or wish they would have done something differently or just <laughs> right or just or just like uh unbelievably sad that it's over um and again like everybody everybody wants their eas to come around right and then when the eas comes they're like oh man i don't know that was kind of cool like i had I, I was doing some good stuff i was getting fulfillment like i had um it, it was much better than i than i thought I, I actually profiled somebody else in the book um who the moment that he chose to chose actively to eas he says like was one of the worst one of the worst moments of his life because he had fulfillment he had importance he was, you know, it was something to be in the 82nd Airborne. And then when you get out, that's not there anymore. And as you say, like, there's um, always for everyone who gets out this idea that they're like, what comes next? And there's a, a sense of, of not being fulfilled uh, when you leave. And it's so important for the military to prepare us to be, to be citizens after we're soldiers, like, because we are citizen soldiers in the United States. And it's so important that the military works to prepare us well for that. But it's also important that we prepare each other and ourselves for that, to know that the military is not going to fulfill everything. Like no matter how, what rank you are, um, who you are, like it's not going to, it's not going to fulfill everything for you. And when you get out, you need to be ready for what comes next. And for the folks who are the high priests of war, like they need to, they need to know how to pass those vestments on to the next generation uh, and to understand that they've, you know, they've fought their fight and they've done their done well uh, and they've finished their task and it's time to move on. And then what do they do next? And, uh, you know, it's something that the military has, has really wrestled with is doing a good job with like separation, uh, like steps yeah. and taps for, for us. Right. Um, for sure. So, yeah. It, it, well, I mean, I definitely am thinking like, sort of what you were mentioning earlier about uh you know we are members of a team we're members of a unit um but yet when you go to tap and tap all they talk to you about is what you're going to do as your as an individual and right. there's no i mean and i get right. you can't necessarily bleed too much over like you can't have mental health counselors in tap and tap but maybe you should um yeah, uh, that's an aspect or, of transition we need to be prepared for as well or just understand uh, understand how to present those things to people um, because it's you know I I remember when I went through when I went through the the out processing there was somebody there who the, the, we spent a half a day on learning how to file for unemployment and the person said hey this you know this is this is what's due to you after all this time and and uniform you should just take it and and you know move on and I was like is that really the message that like that we want to be passing on to soldiers who are getting out that the best thing that you can hope to do when you take off this uniform is to file for unemployment insurance? Like, yeah, that's a, that's a safety net that's there for, um, for folks who need it. But that's, that's the highest that we can, that we can hope to hope aspire to. to. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and like for mental health stuff, like, it's so easy to fall into, I think, um, just as our, uh, the very nature of our, um, uh, of our society and culture, right. Is to fall into that stereotype or that template of the veteran that we talked about earlier in the show of, Hey, um, here's where you can go to get counseling because you're broken brother or sister. And this is what you're going to need to do. Well, maybe we need to talk about um, the, 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 the need to have conversations with someone about what we've just done, not because we 
um, not because we're broken, but because we need to process through all the things that, that we've done while in uniform and what we're going to do when we get out. And um, that's, that's just a natural, a natural part of life. And it doesn't show that you're, that you're damaged goods. It shows that you are willing to, um, willing to, to forthrightly face the things that, um, uh, the things that have affected you and have affected your brothers and sisters in uniform. Uh, and it's something that, that we really need to do a better job of. And I think that it starts with the subs and TAMS process and having commanders, um, recognize that, when their soldiers or sailors, Marines, Coast Guard or airmen are getting out, it's not like they're take you know, they're not, um, they're not turning their back on the service. They're, they're processing out and going back to the civilian world to live productive lives informed by what they've done in the service. And if, you know, if that, if that's the way we take care of men and women in uniform, then we're going to get more men and women in uniform who join up. Right. Um, and we're like, what we want to contribute to, 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 uh, to turning around recruiting issues that we're having right now, recruiting problems, be a model veteran and say, Hey, look at, well, look at what came, look at what came from my service. If you really feel that way. Uh, or if, if it was not so great, look at the ways I'm being supported in, yeah. um, in getting assistance now for mental health issues or for physical issues or whatever. Um, I mean, Tra- learning learning to transition out is something that the military has had uh, long had issues with and soldiers have long had issues with um there's no there's no ultimate solution to it it's but there is that's not to, that's not to say we should just give up on it right like there's constant progress that we can have toward doing well by our by ourselves and our fellow uh, our fellow um warfighters yeah I, I agree 100% i think your book is is definitely helping um, sort of fill in that void uh, with narrative rather than just like you said, just rather than just a command chronology. Um, but yeah, I think one of the things too that we need to, and your, your book is helping us do, is to interrogate the aspects of the military that maybe aren't so great. But we have this perception that the only thing that we can, the only fate, public face that we can have is a, as a Department of Defense is that of this squared away, Johto, gung ho service member um and we know that that person doesn't really even exist and so what do we do with everybody else and then how can we then make that appealing to those who don't feel like they can or they don't want to put that on they don't want to risk what little they have to try to meet this unrealistic ideal that none of us are upholding it anyways and so maybe if we did start to talk a little bit about where we have challenges, but then what we're doing to support those people who are having a rough go at it. Maybe, like you said, it would uh, it would be much more um, accessible to these up and coming generations who are very, very skeptical, as you know well know, being a correspondent, very skeptical mm-hmm. about anybody in a position of authority. Uh, and if we can't sort of get on board with transparency, man, we're going to continue to suffer. Yeah. And I I think that there's, I mean, there are ways to do this without, um, without causing, I mean, there are many ways to do this without causing a weakening or a perceived weakening of the force. Um, and to, um, to pursue some of these, to pursue answers to some of these questions and, and issues that the military faces, um, doesn't, doesn't make it, uh, you know, doesn't make it uh, a weaker force and uh, make us long for the days of the, uh, of, you know, like the old core or whatever. Um, <laughs> it, it, it pushes us forward into a realistic future. And um, that's, yeah, that's something that we should, we should be striving for. Well, we both know, man, the old core is a myth anyway. So yeah, there's the old, there always was the old core, right? And it's yeah. just, just past where we are right now, like just back there somewhere. Right. <laughs> hey, William, man, you got anything else? Yeah, so you know uh, the typical like the the merch question. Where can we find your book? Do you have any future projects you're working on? You're getting out there. Do you have any other material you like to to push to our you know dear loving listeners? Thanks. Uh, so the book is uh, Bravo Company: Afghanistan Deployment and Its Aftermath. Uh, it's published by Abrams Press, and uh, you can get it uh, at your local bookseller or any fine online retailer. Um, yeah, it's it should be it should be available uh, just about anywhere. So. It comes out November 1st. Um, there's uh, audiobook as well. I uh, 
read by yours truly. So you nice. know, if you have enjoyed this podcast, perhaps you'll enjoy the audiobook. Um, and uh, no, I'm I'm just uh, uh, still writing at the at the Wall Street Journal and trying to figure out what the next long form project is. So if anybody out there has some ideas, um, I'm pretty easy to track down. Uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter at uh, bkessling. Uh, Instagram, Ben.Kessling, um, or, uh, you know, at uh, WSJ.com. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, listeners, go out, buy a copy of the book, buy one for your family. Holiday season's coming up. They're all, they can all stand to learn a thing or two from, uh, from Bravo Company. Yeah, absolutely. This is, uh, this is a very important conversation, Ben, and uh, thank you so much for including us in on it. Hey, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it um, and appreciate what you're doing. So thank you so much. Thanks, man. Well, best of luck to you, dude. All right, take care. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding, but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC Retired, Nancy Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.